Well, um, the Winter Olympics are over for another four years, and um, I read a, just recently an article about what um, helps to keep um, the athletes motivated, uh, because it's, it's not all gold medals and glory. Uh, for most athletes, it's uh, four years of hard work, often up at dawn, training all day, and uh, trying to improve for the next event. Um, so what keeps athletes like that motivated? Well, the article I read said often it came down to keeping your eye on the prize. Um, One figure skater said that she'd often go to the rink and put in the hours, and when it was feeling too much, she'd think ahead to the next event, um, and that was the motivation. That was the the light at the end of the tunnel. And friends, motivation is uh, critical for athletes. Um, It's also critical for our lives as followers of Jesus. Uh, See, what is it that is to keep us motivated? Uh, particularly uh, in times when our Christian life might feel difficult or like a lot of hard work. Well, today uh, we come to a section here in Matthew's Gospel. Um, We're continuing in this series, listening to the teaching of Jesus. And there's two sections here in this passage, which I think are often used to motivate us in our Christian lives. And uh, look, as I've considered this part of Jesus' teaching this week, I think that it's possible Um, to use this part of Jesus' teaching to motivate us in the wrong way. Um, Because it is possible to have the wrong motivation. Uh, So you might well be doing God's work. Uh, You might be serving and giving and doing all of the things that obedient followers of Jesus are supposed to do. But it is possible that your motivation for doing those things could be entirely the wrong reasons. I mean, isn't that exactly what we saw with the Pharisees a few weeks ago? Uh, They were meticulous in their obedience, but their hearts were not motivated by love for God and his glory. They were motivated by love for themselves so that others would see and praise them. Uh, Their motivation, it was all about them, not God. And I'll say that at the beginning because I, I just want us to keep that in mind as we come to our passage today. I think that will help us to read and apply this part of Jesus' teaching to our lives. See, I don't want us to go away from this passage with a wrong motivation. Um, But what I do want is for us to see the good news of the gospel here and for that to be the reason why we would live for Jesus each and every day. So we're continuing uh, in this section of Jesus' teaching. It's uh, the last part um, before, well, of his... Uh, of this kind of long speech that we've been in before the final events leading up to his crucifixion. And the big lesson that Jesus continues to impress on his disciples is that they need to be ready for the coming of his kingdom. And the two parables just before have emphasised this need to be ready. So at the end of chapter 24... Uh, There was a story about a master who returned um, surprisingly early. Uh, Then last week, if you're with us, uh, Gareth unpacked the parable of the ten virgins at the start of chapter 25, which was where a bridegroom returned surprisingly late. And so the message is that we need to be ready. And that continues in our first story today, um, the parable here of the bags of gold. And Genesis... uh, already made a comment on that, but if you know the story, I'm sure most of you do know the story, you probably know it as the parable of the talents. 
Uh, that's how it's been translated in most versions. And there's a little footnote there in your Bible saying that the Greek word there is talents. But I actually like the translation, the parable of the bags of gold, because I think we can get a little confused when you do hear that word talents. When we hear it, we, we don't think of money. We think of um, skills or abilities. You know, like, isn't that a talented snowboarder? Or look at that figure skater doing a triple axel, you know, whatever that is. But, you know, that, I think that can sort of actually take us off course because talent here in the Bible, it just means a sum of money. Uh, it means a very large sum of money. Uh, the modern equivalent is it's probably worth about 15 years of wages. So it is like being handed a bag of gold. Um, it's like this huge, generous gift that the master gives to his servants. And so this is uh, how it goes. Uh, Let me read a few verses there at the start of verse 14. Jesus says this. He's talking about his kingdom. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, to another one bag, each according to his ability. And then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. Now I won't keep reading all of it out, but Now what happens? Well, these first two servants, they put their money to work, which pleases the master. Uh, The third one who hides uh, his gift in the ground, well, the master is not pleased with him at all and he takes that bag of gold away from him and that servant is thrown out of the master's presence. So what's the parable about? Well, it's often understood like this, that Jesus is teaching his disciples that he's going to go away for quite a long time And in that time, well, there are tasks that his servants are to get on with. And then when he returns at the end of the age, well, they will be judged according to how well they have performed those tasks. Uh, Maybe you've heard the parable taught like that. And the application then is, well, make sure that you are using what God has given you for the sake of his kingdom. Um, Certainly that's how I have heard it taught and applied. But I think before we move too quickly to that application, we should think about the context here into which Jesus is speaking. And a key question for us to ask is, like two weeks ago, I mean, what time is Jesus referring to? So this story here is about a master and servants. Um, The master entrusts generous gifts uh, to his servants for a time, leaving them with tasks to perform until he comes. And when he comes, well, he assesses what the servants have produced. And I think if we consider the context, and just before this speech, we saw in Matthew 23, Jesus there was denouncing the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees in that series of seven woes, condemning them for their failure as God's servants. And see, they were the ones who were entrusted with God's good gifts, with his law and his promises and the temple. They had been given this responsibility to lead people in worship and relationship with God. 
And yet Jesus condemns them because of how they failed to do that. Instead of glorifying God, they were self-centred and self-promoting. And because of their failure to be the light to the nations that God called called them to be, well, we've been seeing in this section of how God is removing them and even what they have will be taken away from them. So I think as we come to this parable, the context should help us see that first and foremost, it's a story about God and Israel. And the emphasis in the parable, it does fall on the, the third servant there who failed in his task, the one who, who misunderstood the heart of the master, now calling him a hard man, when what the master had in fact done was given generously of his own possessions. And so if that's right, I mean, if we're to understand the wicked, lazy servant as being representative of the religious leadership of Jesus' day, well, who then do the other servants represent? Well, it would seem that it is all those who hear the call of Jesus and receive God's gifts with thankfulness. Those who begin then to live and act and and be the kind of kingdom that Israel was always called to be. Instead of those who take the light and put it under a bowl, as we heard back in the Sermon on the Mount, it's those who become a light to the nations. And that city on a hill that cannot be hidden, those who let their light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, friends, I certainly do think that there is a place for application about putting the gifts and talents and all of those things that God has given us to work for his kingdom. But as we come to a passage like this, well, let's, let's make sure we do those things with the right motivation. Not in, a, in order to earn favour with the master, but because we have already been given his great favour because we know the great gift that he has given us, the great love that he has for us. That is what is to be our our motivation. Well, Jesus continues then uh, with the final part of the speech. Um, After the parable of the bags of gold, he then gives us this picture of the sheep and the goats. Um, And it's this picture of separation, isn't it? Where now people of all nations, we're told in verse 32, are gathered before the Son of Man when he comes in his glory. Now maybe I'm just showing what era I grew up in, or perhaps it's my Baptist upbringing, but you know, when I think of this parable, I can't help but think of a Keith Green song, um, with, uh, which was kind of a paraphrase of Jesus' words here. Do some of you know that song? Let's, um, David knows it, let's never play it in church. There was... Um, <laughs> There was some pretty crazy piano going on. And, um, you know, at the end of the song, it finishes like this by saying that the difference between the sheep and the goats is the difference between what they did and didn't do. If you know the song, that's how it ends. It just ends like that. The only difference is between what they did and didn't do. And I think we need to ask, well, is that what this parable is teaching? Because if it is, I mean, that sounds a whole lot like salvation by works, doesn't it? So is that what it's teaching? Or could it be perhaps that maybe Keith Green might have got it wrong? 
Well, I think if we pay attention here to both the words that are used as well as the context into which Jesus is speaking, I think that'll help us to see what Jesus is saying here. And firstly, one very important thing to notice is that the Son of Man, he doesn't here divide people up by what they do. He divides them up based on who they are. In this, in this scene, you are either a sheep or a goat. Maybe not very flattering, but you know that's, that's how he divides them. The reality then is that sheep do certain things and goats do certain things. But that's not what makes them a sheep or a goat, it's just what they do. And as it's described here how sheep operate and how goats operate, I mean, what really stands out about it is when he goes through this list of things that they did or didn't do, he lists out all of these things and and they don't even know what he's talking about. Now, when did we do these things, Lord? You know, when did we see you cold or lonely or in need? You know, they're, they're surprised about it. And I think this is really important. And a giveaway, I think, for how we should read this is in verse 34, if you take a look there. It says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Now, that word inherit, I mean, you don't do anything to get an inheritance. That is not something that is earned. It's something that is given, and it's something that you get by virtue of who you are. Not by what you do. It's all about who your father is. It's about what family you belong to. And it's prepared for them, we're told there, from the foundation of the world. So it can't be about anything good or bad that they did. It's by virtue of who they are, which comes to them by God's grace. So please, if you're like me, if you've got Keith Green in your head as you come to this passage, then we need to change our thinking. Because I think in this scene here of separation and judgment, it's not, it's not that the only difference is what they did or didn't do. It's about who they are and it's about what they inherit as adopted children of God. And see, this then is the logic of the gospel, that as we are made God's children by grace, well, then we begin to live as God always intended us to. We begin to take on the family likeness. And so in this passage, having been declared to be sheep, well, those in the kingdom do the kinds of things that sheep do. Things like going to the least of these when they are hungry and giving them food and drink. Things like welcoming the stranger and clothing the needy and visiting the sick in prison. I think we should note that as Jesus speaks about the least of these, if you see there in verse 40... Um, He says, the least of these brothers and sisters of mine. Now that's a reference that has in mind, first of all, other believers, other members of God's family. And that phrase, the the least of these or the little ones, you know, that's been used several times in Matthew's gospel. and And so it's talking here, firstly, about what sheep do caring for other sheep. Christians caring for their brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't also care for all people, um, but that's just what the phrase means. And these are the kinds of the things that that the church does. I mean, it begins in Acts chapter 2, you know, those beautiful pictures of the early church caring for one another, providing for one another, selling their, their own belongings 
so that other members of their church can be looked after. And I think it's also worth noticing here that as Jesus speaks about these things, he's saying that these are the things that the church does corporately as a body. I do think that's worth noticing because I think we can, in a sense, individualise this too much. And maybe as you read this, you start feeling a little bit guilty. Maybe you think, well, you know, how many people have I visited? You know, who have I fed this week? Or what sick or needy people have I looked after? But see, we shouldn't feel like we all need to do everything. Because the picture here is that Jesus is speaking to all the sheep collectively. And can I say part of the reason why you give to the church is so that the church can do these kinds of things. So that it can provide for the needy and for the sick among us. So that it can provide things like disaster relief. So that it can free up a pastor or a chaplain who can go and and visit a member in hospital or in prison. And when they do that, well, that is the church doing that. It has been done by all the people. I think that's what part of why there's the surprise in this passage. When, when did we do these things, say the sheep on his right? Well, the church did these things. You didn't even know you were doing it, but as you were part of the church, you were part of serving Jesus in these ways. It's also why the ones on the left are surprised as well, because... You know, they might have done all kinds of good things, you know, just like the Pharisees did. But if they were not part of God's renewed people around King Jesus, well, they did not do it for him. And so there's this separation, which I hope we can see is based not on what you do, but on who you are. But that leads to another question. When, when is it that this separation takes place? And we often read this and immediately think of the final judgment day. And I mean, certainly on that day, a separation will take place. But again, if we remember the context of this chapter and what we thought about two weeks ago in Matthew 24, well, we might read uh, verse 31 differently. So Jesus says this happens when the Son of Man comes in his glory and sits on his throne. And in Matthew 24, we saw that the Son of Man coming in his glory was firstly speaking of the things that would happen within that first generation of the disciples. And that Jesus there was speaking of his ascension to where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father on his throne. And so this scene here of a separation between the people of God and those who never knew him Well, as this comes at the climax of this long speech in which Jesus is speaking of the replacement of the old Jewish leadership with a new Israel, a new people centred around himself, well, I think we can say that the final judgment, in a sense, comes forward to meet us. And that separation is happening now. It's what's happening today as the message of the gospel is being made known to the nations. And it's as we hear the word of the gospel that good news of Jesus' kingdom, it's how we respond to that that will determine where we stand on the final day. Now, friends, I know I've sort of presented a bit of a different take on this passage today, um, but that's really because as I've come to this passage this week, I've wanted to not leave you with the wrong motivation. 
So as we live for Jesus in these last days, we, we need to be motivated to live for him for the right reasons. We don't serve Jesus in order to earn our salvation. We don't do good things for him and his kingdom in order to be accepted. Now, the logic of the gospel goes the other way. It's because you have been accepted, that's why you obey. It's because the Son of Man first came to serve you and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why we gladly serve him. Now, look, I've got no doubt that God can use our wrong motivations. I'm sure he does. I mean, if I think back to, I mean, for me, what was the reason why I first became a Christian? Um, I, I've told you this story before, probably, but, you know, I had the great privilege of growing up in a Christian home. Uh, but I do remember I've got this vivid memory um, of one night getting up out of my bed and going and seeing my mum and praying with her. And the reason I did was because I was terrified of going to hell. Uh, maybe... I'd heard some of these passages at Sunday school that day. But that was my motivation at the moment. You know, really it was fear and self-preservation. That's why I wanted Jesus. And, you know, I've got a friend who is sort of exactly the opposite. He became a Christian after hearing a sermon on Revelation 21, which was all about, you know, the streets of heaven being paved with gold and how going to heaven would mean all of those riches And so he thought, well, if I'm going to get all that stuff, then, you know, sign me up. (laughs) Now, what was his motivation? Well, it was all about the heavenly reward, which was not Jesus. It was riches and all that kind of thing. So, you know, God absolutely can use wrong motivations. But I think at some point that's got to change because false motivations aren't going to be what helps us to endure and to persevere as Christians. Now, fear, even fear of condemnation will only motivate us for so long. And if you're only obeying God because of what God can give you, well, when the going gets tough, that will probably give way. Instead, what will help us and what is a right motivation is to live our lives as followers of Jesus out of a deep sense of gratefulness and joy for what God has done for us in the gospel. And friends, that motivation, it's all over the New Testament. You know, it's Romans 12, verse 1. In view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. Titus 2, 11, The grace of God has appeared and offers salvation to all people. And it's that grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and yes to living for Jesus in the present age. There's heaps of verses that we could go to as we... Uh, as we reflect on these things. But as we consider today the good news of the kingdom, well, I want to say that the only lasting and life-changing motivation is to live our Christian lives out of a deep sense of joy for who God is and what he has done for us. As we've seen today, knowing that he is the master who has generously given us undeserved blessings beyond compare knowing that he is the Messiah who gave his life in order to call us these brothers and sisters of mine. So friends, let me pray uh, that as we look to Jesus' final coming, that we would gladly and joyfully live for him.
Our Father God, today again we uh, do give you thanks for your great kindness to us in the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the abundant blessings of belonging to his kingdom. We thank you for the grace that has brought us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the sun. And so, Father, knowing that, help us, we pray, equip us to live for you and your kingdom each and every day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.